Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by another friend from across the other side of the of the pond. Um, uh, he's over on the West Coast, so I'm almost finished and he's just getting started on his working day. So this is uh, Carl Stensky. Um, I am glad that I asked him how to pronounce that, how to pronounce that before I told you, dear, uh, said it aloud to you, dear listeners, because I got it, I got it wrong, um, but I got it now, right now. So, Carl, can you please uh, welcome? First off, welcome to the show. Let's Thank just you. pretend we didn't have ten minutes preamble before we started. <laughs> welcome to the show. Nice to see you. you. How are Thank you? Thank you. It's good to see you again. I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm really excited to be here and be able to have this conversation with you today. Yeah. Looking forward to it. I have been looking forward to it all today. I've been having to do some uh, spreadsheet crunching and stuff that I really don't like doing. Uh, <laughs> but the the cloud in the silver lining at the end of my day is speaking to you, Carl. So um, nice. let's uh, yeah, let's get into it. So can you introduce yourself, uh, please, to the to the listeners? Absolutely. So my name is Carl Stensky, and I am what I call a post-adoption specialist. And when I say that, that usually throws people for a loop. What does that mean? It's not really a term that's used so much. And what I'm referring to is somebody who specializes on the impact on not only the child or the adoptee, but everyone surrounding an adoption after the adoption occurs. So um, a lot of times you'll hear me, and today you'll hear me talk a lot about uh, adoption, adoption trauma, things like that. And what I'm actually referring to is the relinquishment, the separation from birth mother. So, um, so I've been doing this type of work, helping families with this type of work for, oh gosh, I don't 10, 11 years now or so. Um, and it just has, has been a, a change in my life to be able to be able to do this. I am an adoptee myself. I am one of those adoptees where I didn't think it had any impact on my life. We can go into that story in a little bit if you want. Um, but not having it had a be a part of my life here I am today as an adoption specialist so we never know the paths we're going to take and, and I'm just excited to be on this journey wow yeah there's so many um so many parallels so many similarities there so um yeah we we're going to get into that this is going to be a great conversation I great in my bones. um so um when I say the words Thriving adoptee. So the podcast is the Thriving Adoptees podcast. When I say those uh, those words to you, Thriving Adoptee, what does that uh, what does that um, what does that conjure up for you? What what do those words mean to you? Yeah, it was interesting because when I first saw uh, came across you and your profile and what you were building here with Thriving Adoptees, uh, the the phrase or term Thriving Adoptees definitely struck a chord with me. Uh, not only one of familiarity and connectedness, because obviously I want adoptees to thrive, I want their families to thrive, but the idea that there's even needs to be a conversation about the fact that adoptees struggle in thriving at times. There are variations on the spectrum of how extreme different people thrive, but it really just struck me the idea of, of how important that is and how key that phrasing is to be able to catch attention for people who are struggling, might even know, not even know it's an adoption issue, but the ability to, to recognize, you know what, there is something here, but there's hope and there's potential and there's possibility. And, and I really liked everything it says in that one little statement. Wow, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, there's always hope. Um, um, that is always hope. And uh, yeah, so the, the idea of Thriving Adoptees is to be that light and, and, and that hope uh, in, the, in, in the darkness. Because there's, there's dark stuff 
uh, that stuff around adoption, certainly. And uh, especially, as you say, relinquishment and trauma. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, places where that focus on the trauma and focus on the darkness. And I guess I wanted to be a, a light, you know, be a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so, you know, one of the things for me is, is the metaphorical and uh, theoretical, hypothetical, I don't know what it is. It's the line between understanding trauma and going beyond it. So, you know, like if we go rooting around in the trauma of the darkness, then we won't see anything. We can't see anything. Um, so how do we come out of that darkness into the, into the light? So can you tell... Can you share a little bit about your 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 story as an adoptee who's obviously come through some stuff, um, like I have, and um, and become inspired to help to help others in the way that you're doing it? Absolutely. Um, so I am an adoptee. I have an older sister who is also adopted. We are not biologically related. She's three years older than I am. I was. Um, born obviously by birth mother in Montana. And uh, I actually lived with her for the first three months of my life. So the story goes is that um, she was raised in an alcoholic and abusive home. And after three months of having a newborn, you can imagine the sleepless nights and the frustration being a single mother and dealing with this. Uh, she felt a certain amount of rage and frustration coming up in her that um, she didn't want me to be raised in an abusive home like she was raised in. So wow. the story is that she then gave me up for adoption. Now, the reason I keep saying the story is, is because further research that I've done has found out that that's actually not the story. However, that's the story that was told to my adoptive parents. And I think that's an important piece of the puzzle to know. Um, but going back to my story, I was then put in foster care for two weeks in what was called the Seroptimist home. And, um, and then after that, I was uh, uh, adopted by my family where, um, great family where I was, was raised and lived in Montana and all over the country. It was wonderful. I was one of those children who always knew I was adopted. My parents spoke about it openly. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't anything other than just part of the conversation and how our family was formed. Um, and I never thought adoption had an impact on my life. I thought, okay, this is great. You know, I've got a nice life. I've got a good family. Uh, things are going well, you know, future ahead of me. I can do whatever I want to do. Um, and, and then as I got older and into relationship years and adolescence and then into young adulthood, there were challenges I had. And I thought all the challenges were just me. And I thought there was something inherently wrong with me as a person, but I couldn't figure out these pieces of relationship, or I couldn't figure out how to believe in myself better, or these, these different things. And um, sometime later in my 30s, I ended up going back to school and getting my pursuing a master's degree that had nothing to do with adoption. But part of the first segment of what I was studying that first year was uh, adoption. And that was going to be one assignment, one, write one paper on it, be done, move on with my life. But what I did when doing that paper is I opened up Pandora's box. And I realized there is a lot there that I need to deal with. And I need therapy. I need help. I need to work through a lot of emotions that I didn't know was there. So there's no way to put this stuff back in the box. Um, as part of that, I was able to work with a school and develop what's called an independent master's degree and focused it. And so my master's degree is in adoption studies in this independent study mode. And so I became an expert in uh, um, 
adoption, relinquishment, trauma, how trauma works in the neurological system, and how um, that trauma will radiate throughout uh, not only all the people impacted by the adoption, but uh, even through generations. So it's a pretty uh, expansive and profound work that I was able to be in, and it just captured me, and I've been chasing it ever since. Yeah. So... Um... <clears throat> This aim that we've got of helping adoptees thrive and helping, obviously, helping their, uh, their their families thrive as well. What have you What have you learned about? I, I struggle to use the how word because um, we live in this world where everything's about strategies and rationalizations and easy things to say and cute little lists of stuff to do. So instead of saying how, perhaps would be an easier way or perhaps a better way would to say, you know, what do you, what do you think helps adoptees thrive? I like what you just brought up, the point of the how and, and how we live in this soundbite world. One of the things that I've struggled with as I've built this adoption business and I have uh, engaged in the speaking circuit and, and gone out to speak at you know, foster homes and adoption homes and, and uh, for doctors and lawyers and judges and all these people who need this information is they're all looking for what are the three things? What are the five steps to success? What are the three steps to healing? What is whatever? And, the, and I, I have found myself at times trying to come up with some pieces like that and always stopping myself because there are no five steps to this. There aren't three steps to this. And if, if I were to define three steps, somebody would take those three steps and not have the healing they need, not have the resolution that they need in their life and stop and think that it failed. When in reality, it is a complex, always moving reality of healing and growth and, and, and self-awareness that this entire process is. So in answer to your question, the thing that I, I see and I know that works hands down over and over again, and this is much simpler said than done, is relationship. Wounds happen in relationship and healing can only happen in relationship. There's an attachment break. At some point, the primary source of our love and our attention and our survival was biological mother. Biological mother left overnight, regardless of the reason she left overnight into an infant or child. That's traumatizing. Everything you know in the world is gone overnight. That creates an attachment break, which creates trust issues, which creates uh, uh, worthiness and self-esteem and all kinds of stuff that comes out of that. But with that, the way to heal that is to then learn to have safe, connected attachment again in relationship throughout life. It is a long process to heal that, but that's the real only way to go about it. Okay. Um, I love it. And I've got other stuff as well. Um, I've got other stuff. Uh, I've got other stuff on then. So I'm just thinking, because this is your show, right? It's my show. <laughs> well, it's your show. I'm, I'm it's my show. It. <laughs> but it, we're here to. We're, we're here to. I, I'm here to. I'm here to learn. I, I'm a curious guy. I'm a learner. Yeah. 
I'm a learner. I, so I listen, I'm listening to podcasts on audio books a couple of hours a day whilst I'm walking the dog in, in the morning, whilst I'm driving the car um, to the swimming pool at lunchtime. I'm, I'm, I'm always on. I'm always, I'm always learning. I'm up for, nice. I'm up for learning. Uh, and I often say this on, on the show is that what I found is that um, that curiosity that I have is something that I see a lot in adoptive parents. I see it in a lot in adoptive parents. Um, and they are more curious than non-adoptive parents because they've heard they've heard the warnings <laughs> mm-hmm. or they're in they're in the midst of the trauma. They've heard, they've heard a forecast, forecast, a weather forecast saying stormy, uh, stormy weather ahead, or they're in the middle of the, they're in the middle of the hurricane, um, and, and therefore they are curious, and they're more curious, and so, but they don't see their curiosity, and and they don't give that any credence, and they don't, and they don't sort of, sort of like pat themselves on the back that they're in the right place. So, I sometimes say this in the show, often say this in the show to to, to thank. The adopted parents for listening and to recognize that they are in the right place um for uh, new ideas and to 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 satiate their curiosity with so so the fact that i um i i uh, I, I love that it is the healing comes the, the healing it's got to be building it's got to be built in the relationships um and they and the parents are coming from love and i sometimes hear this from the agencies you know that uh, the agencies well yeah the the parents the adopted parents think that love is enough well <laughs> it may not be enough but it's a pretty good place to start you know it's the foundation for everything yeah. the learnings that we have to do and the curiosity and what we do all comes from it all comes, yeah. comes from love is the foundation i i think it's an important point because it's kind of it is it's so true that love can be enough but it's also true that love isn't enough in the sense that that i i can love somebody to death and we've seen situations and of a parent loving a child so much but they're actually hurting the child through the amount of love that they have because there's no boundaries no structure no discipline whatever it might be and i'm not talking about adopted children i'm just talking about children in general and um I see so many adoptive parents and I love that they are here and curious and learning. And, and I totally agree. I see adoptive parents who are doing more research and more reading and more going to hear, seek out help and whatever. And it's this, it's this love that is so deep to understand and to help this child in such a deep and profound way, which is phenomenal and amazing. And the idea is that where I say that, that love is, is without the love foundation, right? We're, we're lost already. But when that's there, the next piece that needs to be understood is how is raising an adoptive child different? Where do I need to be aware of uh, the challenges and the wounds that this child's going to deal with so that I can counter them ahead of time and not be helping him or her deal with it in adolescence and young adulthood? The earlier as a parent, I can start to intervene and help heal that, the, the more seamless the attachment transition, and then obviously the more fulfilling potential of life that's there. Okay. So um, you had this great up, up, yeah, had this a, a great upbringing, me too, and you had this later, the, the later trauma, the trauma happened later, 
is is that would that be a way of explain is that a good way of summing it up no no the trauma oh, was okay. the trauma yeah, oh, sorry. was but you didn't feel it you didn't feel it till later later uh, I'll, no I, i'll disagree with that as well okay. oh. the trauma was there and showing up throughout the entirety of my life Okay. What was happening is that not only my parents and they did lack the education, not formal education, they lacked the education of adoption and really society as a whole didn't have an understanding of what that impact was. So nobody knew to see what the, what I was showing as a child that I was expressing. Nobody was able to see that those were signs of trauma. It wasn't until I did my research later that I was able to look back and recognize, wait, all those were signs of trauma. It's how I can help. I was just doing a diagnosis on a case yesterday where there's a child showing up, showing up with these symptoms and I'm looking at the child saying, okay, everything you're telling me here is signs of attachment trauma. So what I'm doing then is I'm going into the family and going, okay, where's the attachment break? What is the issue here? Because it's only when we recognize what this child is truly portraying that we can begin to heal that. So the trauma was always there. People just weren't educated to see it, unfortunately. It's not anybody's fault. It's just where we were yeah. as a society and as people. Yeah. Okay, thank you for clarifying it. I, I'm glad I asked the question because I, I really thought I had that. Uh, I, I, I clearly wasn't listening hard enough to when you shared shared the story so um so the signs were always there but mm -hmm. you nobody else picked up on them or right. they they were less picked up on you know less, and, and you didn't know what you kind of didn't know what was going on you hadn't realized what was going on and then and then when you started doing your research that's when you started to join the dots together yeah okay okay so um that's what i guess what people talk about kind of uh they call it they talk, they, they talk, nowadays i think one of the jargon words isn't it is trauma trauma informed parenting and trauma informed yep. education so that's i guess what is that kind of what you're it, that 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 would have been made your life smoother if 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 your parents had been if if the world had been aware of that and it, Is that what if, if the world had been aware of it, if my parents had been aware of it and were able to implement it properly, okay, okay. trauma-informed parenting is, is, and I used to be the director of a foster adoption agency, and, and trauma-informed parenting is a hot topic in that field. And, um, and it, is a, it is a vital and key piece to helping heal the trauma. Um, I, I don't believe that trauma-informed parenting is the whole solution. Right. But but to me, even if that was the only piece that was introduced earlier in life and introduced well, it absolutely could have made a difference. I'm not saying it would have been the difference between what I'm doing now and myself being, yeah. you know, the president of the United States. But but um, but I think it, it would have made a difference in just how I felt about myself and how I interact with other people in my life. It would have been a more peaceful life. Okay. So what have you learned that you use the word heal yeah and you mm -hmm. use the word, word wound i mean are those are those the words that you can you know are they the, are, are they are, are the way are they the way that you see this for your for yourself that you you know you you have healed the wound through your study of this area yourself you have healed the wound is is that is that how you kind of like categorize it or do you do you, do you talk about it in different terms how do you see it Have you, have you lost, my, you lost my sound? 
Hold, hold on, I've lost you and I'm not, I'm trying to see, I think it's on my end here. How about now, can you hear me now? I can hear you, yeah. I've been able to hear you all the way through. Me. How about now? Try again. I can hear you. Da, 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 da. Okay. All right. Not sure what happened. Looks like my headset died there. So uh, okay. sorry about that. I totally, I totally missed the last thing you just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I'll go back in. I'll get the guy to edit it across the thing. Um, so uh, you've so, Cal, um, what you've said, uh, let me do the clap. So, Cal, what you've said in, in, um, uh, in the last section was you were talking about you, you've healed and you, you know, you, you've been, the, you've, the, the trauma has been a wound and the wound has healed and, and, you've, and you've healed through your own research. Would that be a fair would that be a fair summary? Am I getting? Am I getting that? Am I getting that right? How would you? Yeah, how would you I, I characterize that? I don't want to be too nitpicky, but okay. I, I do want to be clear. Um, I Please. wouldn't say I'm healed, right? I would say it's a process of healing. Okay. And so it's an ongoing process. Um, the other side I would say is that I didn't heal through the research. Okay. Uh, the research certainly helped. It helped me understand a lot of things very quickly. A lot like you, where you're listening to podcasts and reading and, and researching out 24 hours a day. I was the same uh, around that time. Um, but it, it's through not only um, the research I did, which I don't think is necessary part of the process for most people, um, but I got help. I went and saw therapists. I found people who understood attachment and adoption and trauma and deeply understood it. Um, I went to understand people who really understand, and, and I really dug into the, um, how trauma operates in the nervous system, because that really helped me understand what was happening. Um, so it was all these pieces, but then it was also, as I did therapy and as I did this work, I really began to be willing to implement it in my life, to really address it in my day-to-day -day relationships, in my romantic relationships, in my friendships, in my relationship with, with my immediate family. And, um, and what that allowed me to do was really begin the process of trusting in the attachment and all those pieces that really hadn't happened because of all the defenses I'd built up over a lifetime. Wow. Wow. So what was it that you, um, or what was it that you learned or what was the change that happened in the, in the, in the, in the therapy that led you to um, led you to start, you know, to accelerate your healing or to begin your healing journey, and 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 obviously that, as you say, that that healing process is still ongoing. Yeah, and it's a little bit like those three steps, right? There's not one thing that just did it, but um, but the key pivotal point for me, and I'd say for everybody, it's probably a little different, but for me, it was um, one. I really just had to admit just to go, you know what, this impacted my life because there was a time period, even during my research, I didn't want to admit that it impacted my life. So I had to lean in and go, this had an impact. It's not going to define me. It's not who I am forever. It's not, it's not this definitive piece that I can't overcome, but it is a reality that I need to take into account and work through. And the other side was knowing if I'm going to choose to lean into this, it's going to change how I see things, it's going to change how I respond to things, it might change relationships, and it's going to hurt, right? You're digging into emotional stuff. It's going to be an emotional process, 
And I had to be willing to lean into that and know that this was going to be a bumpy road. And when I was willing to go, yes, this is something I not only is real, I need to exist to, to deal with, but I'm willing to step in and deal with it. That's when the process really started moving for me. And I started making gains, so to speak. So do you see a lot of people in, in that kind of denial, a lot of uh, adoptees in, in denial? With, I mean, you said, you, you know, you, you sort of like enough was enough. I kind of like, I need to acknowledge, um, you know, I, I acknowledge something here and that's going to be the start of moving on. Do you see, do you see people not doing that? Do you, do you see people failing to acknowledge it or being in denial? Or, I mean, what, what, what do you see around that? Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of people who, who say that adoption didn't have an impact on their life is the greatest thing ever, which it is and can be. Um, and, uh, and that there's no other issue to deal with there. So I would say they're in a place, and I'm not going to say denial, but they're just in a place of, of they put it in a place where it functions in their life and they're okay with that. I could and look at their life and, and see some areas where maybe they're struggling and, um, and go, okay, these are probably adoption issues that if you want to deal with might help you, but for them, maybe it's not worth it. So I, I'm a big believer that it's not about you need to follow this path I'm taking or that I help people through. It's just about you need to be um, where you are and how can I help you be where you are? So there are people who aren't ready or don't want to deal with it. And then on the other side of that, um, I see people who come in to my office in enough pain where, you know what, something's going on. Is this it? And they're ready to willing to explore it. Um, the majority of the people I see are actually adoptive parents who bring their foster or adoptive children into my office. And um, we give them an assessment and, and set up a treatment plan if that's the appropriate path for them. And it isn't always. And what I will sometimes see in that is I will see a child who's definitely showing symptoms of adoption trauma. I will see, or I should say an attachment break. Um, I will see one of the parents who, uh, thinks this is a thing, needs help, is ready to do whatever, just wants to learn, just wants to help the kid. I'll see another parent who loves the child so much and, and wants to protect the child so much, but doesn't think that adoption is an issue. So then it comes to the, the idea of how do I get the two parents on the same page? Because as long as there's this discourse at home, we're not really gonna be able to help the child. So I need to get them on the same page. I don't always try to force them onto my page, right? Where are they going to meet as a couple? And then from there, we can help them figure out how they want to move forward in, in helping their child. Of course, I have my opinions and how I think uh, we can best help that child and set them up for the best success, but I can't do it at the detriment of the, of the family unit. And so that's one of the, the tight ropes I'm always walking. Yeah. Yeah. So diplomacy skills. Oh, well, absolutely. <laughs> a lot of that. And emotion, emotional intelligence to deal with uh, different, yeah, to see the, the different parents coming from different places. Yeah. 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 Wow. Do you do much work with uh, adult adoptees? I do. I have a handful of adult adoptees. What I find with adult adoptees is they'll come and they'll, they'll work with me at stages. So it's not a consistent like weekly or monthly thing with them. It's more the idea where they'll come for several weeks or maybe a few months 
and we're dealing with a certain stage, right? Maybe it's an issue in relationship. Maybe it's an issue with career. And we're tying these, these life issues back to the adoption wound so that we can heal the pieces they need to of that wound in order to move forward in whatever uh, area they're stuck in their life. Then what'll happen is things will get better. They'll go back to their life. I won't hear from them for a while. They might reach back out in a year, two years, whenever they need it again. Maybe they're at a new life stage. Maybe they've decided to now start um, researching to see if they could find their biological parents and they want help with that. So they'll come to me at life stages as opposed to just kind of a consistent support. Yeah, yeah. And what what is it that you think um, that uh, that heals that heals them? Because clearly, you know, you've um, they're they're out of the they're out of the, the, the they're not they're not with their mum and dad they're probably not you know they're probably living on their own by now um sure. maybe they have a romantic partner but yeah. you know you talked about the uh the, the relationships the, the the key role in relationships so you've got that relation that you've got the relationship part of the jigsaw and then you've got let's call it the uh, therapist counselor coaching support part of the jigsaw so how does um how does that work out you know how does that look that's going to look different between a in, in an adoptive child and an adoptive um adult it looks a little different so with an adoptive child i want their parents and the child in the room i want siblings that are there i want i want as big of the picture as i can get it's the same with adults, but it's a different picture. So it might be a partner, it might be a wife, it might be a wife and children. Um, they may end up bringing their parents in even at different points. So I wanna work with the people that they have relationships in their lives. As I mentioned, healing happens through relationship. So um, I want as many of the important relationships in their lives as possible to be in the room so I can help those relationships find the path to that healing. There are times when those other people won't come in the room or can't, right? Um, or maybe the adoptee is not ready to have them in the room. Uh, in those cases, then I become a, a surrogate of relationship. This meaning just, the, just like a relationship with a therapist, though I'm a coach, they're a relationship with a therapist where they're building trust and, and learning safety with me that then can ideally transfer out into the world. And it's interesting because that's what the adult adoptee. Now, if you talk about a child adoptee and their family and parents, I'm teaching their parents to do the same thing with the child, right? So really the age difference doesn't matter much. It's just about tailoring it just slightly to the life stage they're in. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, the, the healing, I asked you about the healing, you know, the, using that terminology of the healing earlier on. So clearly, you know, we're talking here about, we're using a metaphor. We're talking um, Nancy, uh, Nancy Verrier, primal wound we're talking healings and um what what does that what does it so it's a metaphor so what do you think these what do you think the heat what do you think is healed because it's not the body it's 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 not a cut on it's not a cut on the arm yeah what, what is it that you it, it's a kind of a twofold it's emotional right which also makes it neurological, right? So when you have a wound that is, is broken, the emotional, emotions are such an intangible, right? 
they're real. We all know they're real. We all have them, but they're intangible because there's no place in the body you can point to. Um, we will have somatic experiences where maybe you're having stress or anxiety or hurt and your stomach gets tight or your shoulders get tight or you get headaches. Those are very real uh, physical symptoms, somatic symptoms of whatever that emotion is. But the actual emotion we can't pinpoint to because emotion lives in the brain, right? Which then now we're talking about the neurological piece. So how do you heal the brain and how those synapses fire, how they connect, how they link? How do you help rewire that or at least ease the tension in that to be able to ease the emotion that follows? For example, and this is a bit more of an extreme example, um, there's something called reactive attachment disorder. Reactive attachment disorder um, comes from many different things, but attachment breaks where there's a severity of not being able to really uh, find a secure attachment soon. I won't go into all the details of it. It's pretty complex. But what you've got is, uh, is people or children is where you start to notice it, adolescents, young adolescents, where um, they're acting out, right? You're talking rage, you're talking explosions at school, you're talking third graders who are blowing up a classroom and running out uh, of the building, right? And, and doing all kinds of stuff and sending the whole school running after them, trying to catch them. So there's, there's this really extreme place. Now, when you do a MRI or a brain scan of that type of child, even when they're sleeping or at rest, their brain is on fire. You can see it snaps us firing constantly as opposed to a different child who we would call, and I hate the word normal, but has a more um, socially normal uh, upbringing where the brain is calmer, like more blues, more peace, more places not firing. Whereas for the child with the reactive attachment disorder, very red, a lot of on fire. And the reason I wanna paint that picture of picturing two different brains like that is the idea of recognizing that the child who has a reactive attachment disorder or whose brain is firing constantly cannot rest. When they cannot rest, what happens is, one, they're hypervigilant. They're always on guard. They're constantly scared of the next threat, right? So now we're talking about threats. Now we're talking about fear, right? When you're talking about threat and fear, we start to talk about the amygdala. The amygdala is the reptilian part of the brain, the part of the brain that um, basically controls fight or flight, right? The amygdala is the only part of the brain that is formed at birth. The rest of it all gets formed afterwards. So picture a child, picture me, for example. I was born, here I am, this cute little baby with an amygdala, right? Very Lucky cute. Me. Very cute, exactly. <laughs> Lucky me with an amygdala. Three months later, not much more of my brain has formed and mom is gone. The only part of my brain that is able to keep any kind of memory or, or of that experience is the amygdala. So now the amygdala says, if somebody who I am attached to leaves, I am not safe, okay? So the amygdala now becomes the filter for everything else in life. So let's say um, I'm walking down the street and a bus drives by, right? the filtering of a bus coming goes into my amygdala. My brain says, you're okay, you're on the sidewalk, it's not your, near you, you're safe. It takes that information about the bus and it moves it into my prefrontal cortex, the area of my brain which can reason. That remember, it doesn't exist in an infant or child. Now you um, take something else, right? You and I meet in person. And the first time we go to meet, you raise your hand really high because you're excited to see me and you're about to give me a hug. 
Now my brain, my amygdala takes that information of a hand being raised really high and it might take it as, oh geez, he's going to hit me. Or he's just saying, hi, he's safe, he's friendly, right? But what, that fil what it filters in and what it filters out is going to depend on my previous experiences. If I had a previous experience of abuse or an attack of some kind, my amygdala will grab onto that raised hand and say, you are, a th you are being threatened, find safety, right? And if, my, if that wasn't part of my experience, he's just saying hi, and it moves it through again to the reasoning part of the brain. The reason why that's important to understand is because my amygdala, adoptees amygdalas, have this broken attachment piece. So that's why when a girlfriend leaves us, that's why when a, a boyfriend doesn't come home when he's supposed to at night, that's why when friends decide they don't wanna be friends with us when we're in the sixth grade, and it can be so much more devastating to who we are because our amygdala and our nervous system is saying, this is a major threat, okay? okay. Go ahead. So how, how, does the, um, how does the therapy change that? So exactly, that's where rebuilding attachment, rebuilding safety, what we're doing is reteaching the amygdala, we're reteaching the brain that there isn't a constant threat. We're reteaching the brain that, that relationships are safe, that if somebody leaves, they are coming back, right? That just because, uh, you know, boyfriend or mom or whoever goes out of town for a business trip, they are coming home. So it's reteaching that trust and that safety, healing through relationship, reteaching them that it is safe, you can connect, and it is safe to attach again. And it's in that true attachment in relationship where the healing really happens. Okay. I can, I can really see that in the child, um, mm -hmm. from the child perspective. Um, because, you know, they're, they're doing this work with you and, it's, uh, and, the, and the parents are doing the work with you and, and, it, and, and you know, they are, you know, they have the world. They, they, have, they have a lot of people putting their the arms around them. I can see that. I can I can see that working, and so it's like a it's like um it's experience. It's just it's an experience. Mm -hmm. They're experiencing this, um, but I'm really interested in kind of like the adult adoptee uh, working with you, whereas it hasn't got it doesn't have that kind of the breadth of experience to me. Does it? Does it? It doesn't. Well, it's not something that. It feels like more like an intervention rather than a way of life. Do you see what I mean? Tell, tell me about that. What feels like the intervention? Well, um, so I, I'm, I'm 54, right? I say I come to see you. I'm an adult adoptee. I come and see you um, and we work on some issues, right? That seems like, um, well, that's a bit like therapy and a bit like therapy, counseling, coaching. Yep, yeah, I'm in the same space. Mm -hmm. so, um, that's kind of a, a, a one-off. Um, you've got, a, that's a, a, a one-off. It's not a one-off, but you know, it's an hour out of my day um, and I come and see you for a few weeks. And then the other side is, you know, this parent, this adopted child with the parents. And it's like, you know, when they're not at school, mm. they are just being cosseted in this, in this love and this experience. And it feels like, and they come and see you an hour a week. So does it, how does it play out? Does it? Do you see the, yeah, the difference? One's, one's an intervention, one's, one's an experience. Yeah, help me if I understand. So you're saying that because the child 
has this parent who's aware of this and is intentionally engaging this daily, that they get much more of it integrated throughout their day, whereas you are getting it for an hour. Is yeah, that kind of what you're referring to? That's what I'm getting from. And does, right. does that does that mean there's a difference between the efficacy of the of the, of the work? Uh, I, efficacy maybe a little bit, and the only reason I say a little bit is because as a child you're in developmental stage. So we are now, we're setting those synapses firing in healthy ways, right? The brain's connecting in really healthy ways. So as a child, we're able to, to make progress that's gonna be um, very long lasting. Whereas with an adult, uh, we have to rewire the brain that's done forming, right? It's not growing anymore. There's not any new development that's happening in our brain. So we have to rewire what's already there. Um, however, it's not just a one-off. It could be, right? It could just be, you wanna come see me once for an hour, we do a few things and then you will go away for a while. That's not gonna really help. But that's why when people first come to see me, they're coming to see me usually for several weeks or months at the yeah. minimum to begin with. And the reason why I would also want your family to come in if you were willing and they were willing. The more of your family I can get in there, the more I can educate to this, the more I can change the dynamic of the family that secures the attachment for you and starts to rewire those. If I did have to work with you alone without family around, the thing I'm gonna start helping you see is in your life, in your family life, in your work life, in your life, where are you putting blocks to these attachments and relationships? Because through your life, you've learned you had to to be safe, right? So I'm gonna help you start seeing that. I'm gonna help work with you to figure out, okay, where are some of the safest places where we can start to trust? Let's just put our toe out here. Let's just take a little risk here and see if we can start to build that trust that way. Because when I can start to slowly build that trust that way, the people in your life are gonna start reacting differently. And then they're gonna be acting in a much more healthy manner, even though they've never even come to see us. Okay. I get it. So it's a little bit longer of a process, but it can still work. Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, th there, are no, um, uh, there are no steps, there is no one size fits all. Um, in that, in that change, what, what what do you think helps in that change in that change process in in that in, in that you know the the nurturing and the in the in the safety zone and what or maybe what shouldn't we do that maybe another you know you can answer the question both uh, both ways if whichever way you you prefer and then um, and then we'll, we'll we'll bring it in. Well. Are you referring to adolescence, childhood? Or are you referring to adulthood, or just all of it in general? Um, if you can, if you can answer all of it, that would be great. Right. If you want to break it down, that's that's great as well. Um, I'll, I'll just. I don't want to ask you. I don't want to ask you awkward questions. I want to give you. I want to give you. I don't want to ask you. I want to give you place to flourish. Um, at the core of it, at the core of it, it's the idea of giving the person who has the wound as much safety as possible, right? When we can recognize when they're reacting to the wound as opposed to to the relationship, then we approach them from a different perspective. Let me explain. So as an adult, um, maybe your wife goes out and, um, and doesn't call when she's supposed to, right? And, or you're expecting her to, I should say. Better, better way to say it than supposed to. Um, she uh, uh, it doesn't call when you're expecting her to. Well, your wounded heart and mind will go to abandonment issues, 
right? You'll go to leaving me, doesn't want to be with me, different places like that. Now, how that plays out might be different. You might play it out as you're not coming home. You might play it out as, oh my God, is she okay? She's in a car accident. You might play it out as, is she cheating on me? You might play it out in a bunch of different ways to justify that feeling of fear. So when she comes home and you're kind of reacting and being a, basically a jerk, right? Because she just missed a call by an hour and you're kind of going off the rails here. She can respond to you head on. You don't have a right to be upset about that. You can fight me on that and all those things. And she probably has a right to have that kind of frustration and, and of being upset. But if she's able to recognize, or you're even able to help her recognize, I'm feeling really abandoned right now, right? And I know this might not be logical, but I feel really abandoned and this is really real for me right now. So instead of her fighting you or approaching you, she might be able to come to you and just go, you know what? I'm gonna miss phone calls. I'm gonna miss things. I'm not leaving you. I love you whatever it is, just to reinforce your safety and not engage in the fight, right? Now, there may be some hurtful things said that need to be addressed, and those can be addressed and, and worked on a little bit separately. But in that moment, the key is to get you out of that fight or flight so that you both can be on a level field to be able to have a, a rational conversation. So the whether it's a child or an adult, if anybody else can recognize that a person is in that response moment they can help de-escalate it by bringing safety back in as opposed to engaging in the fight. So if we're, um, if we're an adoptive parent or a foster parent, we need to be very aware of the perceived, that the, the, the adopted kid's brain is running on red alert. And, and, and if we're an adopted kid or an adopted adult, like, like me at 54, I need to be kind of self-aware that actually the uh, the red alerts that seem to be flashing across my mind aren't actually real. The red alerts, I'm, I'm going to get more red alerts than most people. And those red alerts, uh, if I can question those, you know, I'm not talking about the, the the red alert might be the fact that the bus is about to mow me down because I'm looking at my phone um, rather than looking at the traffic. So, you know, there's red alerts and there's red alerts. But to so if we've got adult adoptees listening, um, it's that realize that as, as adoptees, we are more vigilant than, than most and, and we perceive with perceiving danger and we're perceiving threat and we're perceiving loss more than other, other people and it may be to do the adoption trauma. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say so. And I, I think as to adult adoptees who might be listening, um, just a good pattern to try to figure that out is, are, is there one area or are there several areas in my life where I tend to react bigger or more than other people do to a similar situation, right? That's a good, just a good window to start looking at. Um, for parents of adopted children, I don't want to panic them. Um, I was talking about reactive attachment children with their brain being on fire. There are moments when adopted children's brains will be on fire as well, but it's a totally different level. So I don't want any panic happening out there. Um, and again, like the work that adoptive families are doing and, and is, is amazing, right? And to that end, um, 
being able to help a child through whatever their life circumstance is in the best way possible is the ultimate goal, I think, of every parent, right? They love their kid and they want to do that. So I just, I just think it's, it's, it's a great relationship and there's a lot of, of great work that can be done out of it. Okay, Carl. So we'll put some links into your your, your site um, in the uh, in, in the show notes, um, and uh, and some and, and links to your social and stuff like that. Is there anything particular? Anything else you'd like to to share? No, I think that's it. To me, this is just such a wonderful ongoing conversation with so much depth to it. Um, and the key is just to you know, if you think there's an issue reach out to somebody who has some expertise in this and, and just discuss it. And it may be a fit for your family, might not, but you know, it's worth exploring. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot for your help, Becca, and uh, see you again soon. Wonderful to talk to you, Simon. Thank you. Thanks for coming on.